Well, let's jump right in. Leviticus. Open up your Bibles if you've got it with you, the book of Leviticus. If you don't have it, grab one from the back bookshelf. As we continue on together in our study through the Word, and we will this morning, I think, challenge some misnomers, even about why this book is here and what in the world are we doing studying Leviticus in these days. If ever there was a book that should be irrelevant, past tense, unimportant, non-affecting of our lives, you would think it would be this one and you would be absolutely wrong. Leviticus chapter one, verse one, then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it. A male without defect, he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar, around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. That's the bronze altar of sacrifice. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering is from the flock or of the sheep or of the goats, for a burnt offering he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. He shall then cut it into its pieces with its head and its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma. To the Lord. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from the young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar, and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Then he shall tear it by its wings, but shall not, shall not sever it. Make sure you keep, keep an eye on that one. Don't sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the wood which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Have you ever been to one of those worship services? Yeah, me either. So what is the point? Father, reveal to us why Leviticus is in your word. And as you make revelation... I ask for transformation in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You lost me at Leviticus. He found me in the blood. That's what we're calling this study through this remarkable book, a book I greatly feared before I taught it the first time, approached it thinking, how in the world are we going to get through this one? And I looked at it, as many do, the book of law, just laws and irrelevant statements and things not having to do with us. Did you know that Leviticus is the first book Jewish children study at synagogue? Not Genesis, not one of the other books of the Hebrew scriptures, not perhaps the Psalms, something a little easier to take, maybe something further along, or, or, or maybe Joshua, Ruth, there's a nice short one that they could start with. No, they begin with Leviticus. There was even, even a, a sweet custom of placing a drop of honey on the first page and letting the child lick it so that they could have the experience of licking up the sweetness of Torah. Why? Why would anyone start a child out on Leviticus? Perhaps that's a good way to approach our study this morning. Why are we in Leviticus in 2020, in the midst of all that's happening in the world today? Isn't there something more important or relevant that we could be studying? And it's interesting, they began children on Leviticus for a couple of different reasons. One, there was a 5th century midrash. A midrash is a Jewish commentary called Leviticus Rabbah. And in Leviticus Rabbah, chapter 7, verse 3, it reads, and I quote, children are pure, therefore let them study laws of purity. Children are pure, therefore let them study laws of purity. And that's a hint as to where we're going, but the law itself debunks the idea that children are pure. Clearly, the person who wrote that never had kids, because they ain't pure. Cute, sweet, but utter hot messes. They come into the world like all of us do with a sin nature. Romans chapter 7, let me just read this to you. Verse 12 says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? <laughs> May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage, into sin. That's the sin nature. The law is perfect. The law is good. The law is clean. Read Psalm 19. The law is righteous. And the law reveals the reality of you and me from birth up that we are not. Sold into slavery of sin. All the way back as far as the garden. We were sold into slavery. Born slaves of sin now. Oh, Adam and Eve. No, no, you and me. Because see, Adam and Eve sinned and began the process, but everyone in like mind sinned after them. Maybe not in the same way that Adam and Eve sinned, but we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all born with a sin nature. That's why Jesus says, John chapter 3, verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. 
That's every single person ever born in history. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again because first birth, flesh birth, will never get you into heaven. You will never see eternal salvation in the flesh because the flesh is sinful. Kids, kids are just smaller versions of their full-blown adult selves needing to be taught purity and holiness needing to be born again, sinners in need of a savior. That's how we were born. That's the world that we come into. And we have an invitation by the Lord to be born again. So teaching children Leviticus, not because they're pure, but because they are impure is the right move. And for us to be in Leviticus, launching from it, it's a very good idea. Launching from Leviticus. But as you probably know, in the church today, it's one of the last books anybody looks at or considers. A waste of time, passe. Many presume it to be an irrelevant legal code for an ancient people of an ancient time. But if God is unchanging, if God is immutable, isn't the best path to walk the ancient one? Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And that's the problem today. In, in absolute arrogance, we think we have progressed to the state we know what others never knew. We understand things others don't understand. And the truth is, if we don't walk the ancient paths, we are walking in absolute ignorance of the truth. Which is why Paul wrote in Romans 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Leviticus. Just this last week, someone said to me, so we're about to get into laws, right? No. Wrong. If you think that going in, you're going to miss it. My purpose this morning is to try and help us prepare for what we're about to see and be ready for the teaching that is truly enclosed in this book. The, ta the title of Leviticus is the Latin transliteration of the Greek word Leviticon. Leviticon from the Septuagint translation, which was the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek 250 to 300 years before Christ. And in that translation, this book was referred to as Leviticon. The Latin then is Leviticus. That's why we call it that. It means having to do with the Levites, but what's funny to me is the Levites are only named twice and then at the very end of the book, chapter 25. But it's having to do with the Levites. We called it Leviticus all these years. Now, granted, priests are mentioned a lot. 195 times you'll see the word priest mentioned in this book. So it does have a lot to do with those who are priests. Hey, if we're a royal priesthood, this is the book to which we ought to turn. If we truly are being made priests of Christ, then we ought to be in a book that mentions priests 195 times. It's a good place to be. 
Rabbis and Jewish scholars refer to, even today, refer to Leviticus as Torah Kohanim. Torah Kohanim meaning instructions for the priests. With some degree of pride, they will even translate Torah Kohanim instructions of the priests or instructions by the priests as if any of this originated with the priests. It did not. But some will even point to a certain text in Scripture as a proof text. I've mentioned in here many times proof texting is a bad idea. That's when you take one verse to prove your point rather than allowing the Scriptures to be your point. And the rabbis will take Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 18, and say, see, this is all about us. It's about the priest. And, and Leviticus comes from the priests and is by the priests for the priestly tribe. Well, Jeremiah 18, 18 says, surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. Surely not. Problem is, that was spoken, Jeremiah 18, 18, by adversaries of God's man, Jeremiah. Listen to it again. They speak this in rebellion. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. And they went on to say, come on, let us strike at him with our tongue and let us give no heed to any of his words. This book doesn't come from the priests. This book does not come from the mind or thoughts or counsel of man. See, that's the problem is there's that inborn rebellion. Some today still see this as a priestly training manual. But if we focus on the Levites, if we even focus on the priests, we will fall woefully short of understanding, of comprehending the majesty of this book, this marvelous book and so I take you back to the best, the oldest, the most common name in the Hebrew for this book, Vayikra. Vayikra, then he called. The opening words of what we call Leviticus. Literally, it's then called to Moses and spoke to him Yahweh. Vayikra. By the way, there's an immediacy to it. We mentioned this at the very end of our study of Exodus. If you look back to Exodus 33, it says, thus Moses finished the work. Then the cloud of the tent covered the tent of meeting. Remember we said that the moment Moses was done, the cloud of glory came down and flooded the tent of meeting. And that word in verse 34 of Exodus 40, then the cloud covered the tent, then is va. And it's that Hebrew word, that conjunction that immediately ties it to what just happened. Moses finished, va, in comes the Lord. And in the same context, verse one of Leviticus chapter one, va, the Lord called. This is all happening in the same moment. Moses finishes, the glory comes in, and the Lord calls. There, there's no hesitation here to move on to the call of the Lord that he now places on Moses and the people. Va yikra, and he called. Probably my favorite commentary on Leviticus was written in 1846 by Andrew Bonner, that Scottish pastor. And he said, God, note this, God is the direct speaker in almost every page. His gracious words are recorded in the form wherein they were uttered. And note this, 20 of the 27 chapters of this book begin 
Then the Lord spoke. Then the Lord spoke. Do you want to hear from the Lord in your life? Would you like to actually hear God speaking to you? Tune in. Jesus said, Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And there isn't another book in the entire Bible that contains more words directly spoken by the mouth of God than this one. More direct God speaking, Yahweh speaking. Va ye craw, then he called. And so really the question for us over the next few weeks, months, Lord willing, is will we give heed to his word? Will we listen? This is God speaking. Now, again, we're just doing introduction this morning, so I'm not gonna do the verse by verse through chapter one. We're gonna save that, come back to it Wednesday night and perhaps the following Wednesday, depending on timing. I'm gonna go through it and, and really try to understand even this, this burnt offering and then other offerings that will follow. But by way of introduction, you might want to note a couple of things down, and the first thing is this, the key word of Leviticus, the key word of this book is holiness. 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 This book took its cue from the covenantal charge of Exodus 19, verse 5, which says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and, the Lord says, a holy nation. The key word of Leviticus is holiness. God called the people to be a holy nation, and now he's going to begin to tell them how. In fact, Leviticus is the explanation of what it will take to be a holy nation. This ought to be read by every American This is a month-long seminar from start to finish on holiness with God as the keynote speaker. I say month long, you can compare Exodus 40, verse 17 with Numbers chapter one, verse one, and you can see the timing. So we're in Leviticus. God is speaking these things to Moses over the period of one month. And in this month, he is calling Moses and the people to holiness. Turn, if you will, over to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus 11. I'm going to give you two areas in this book that sum up the whole thing, and this is one of them. It's not what I would call the key verse, but it's second to the key verse. Leviticus 11, verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Now, now who's speaking? <laughs> I like to give the easy questions up front. We'll get to the hard ones later. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Remember, to consecrate is to make holy. So make yourselves holy, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy, this has not changed. God is still holy, and he still calls his people to be holy because he is holy. Be holy because I am holy. You can, dis you can discern, understand, since the divine call to holiness on every page of Vayikra. Verse 
of Leviticus. We can even see it in a four-part outline of the book. Let me outline it for you right now so you know where we're going. And we'll kind of follow this, but this will break down the 27-chapter book for you, and you might want to jot this down. And once seeing this, I think you'll understand this is about a whole lot more than law. Part one of the outline, Leviticus chapters 1 through 10, is officiation. Officiation. That is the priests instructed and then ultimately in chapters 8, 9, and 10 ordained to begin the sacrifices. Very important. I'm gonna go through all of the sacrifices of Israel. Five specific ones. I'll tell you what they are in just a minute. And the priests instructed how to do them and why to do them. And there are meticulous requirements for each one which are highly significant. Officiation, the first 10 chapters of the book. And then Leviticus 11 through 16 Purification, purification, not law, purification. This is about being holy because he is holy. Laws for a purified people. And where they can't be purified, they must at a minimum be covered or atoned for. And so in this second part of the book, the purification section, as I've called it, Leviticus 11 through 16, we come to Leviticus 16, which is the best known chapter among Jews even today. It's read annually every year on a very special day called Yom Kippur. Because chapter 16 is all about Yom Kippur and the offering, the sacrifice of atonement. Hold that thought. Officiation, purification, Part three of our outline takes us Leviticus 17 through 26 and it's consecration, making holy. This section has been called by some, and I like this, the holiness code. The holiness code. It goes from blood to behavior, from holy ways to holy days, from laws of redemption to blessings of obedience and penalties for disobedience, it's all in this section, chapter 17 through 26, consecration, the holiness code. And in the last chapter, we set apart all by itself, part four of the outline, valuation. Valuation, officiation, purification, consecration, valuation, that covers the gamut of this marvelous book. It ends in a strange place. Valuation, what do you mean valuation? Financial gifts and offerings. An entire chapter devoted to gifts and tithes and offerings and giving of money and, and, and the value of such giving. But understand that that last chapter is still, it's yet in the context of holiness. Valuation in the context of holiness as articulated by God. Let me just give you this aside. There is a holy effect that results from faithful tithes and offerings. We've, we've tried to engender an attitude over the years at the bridge when it comes to tithes and offerings, and many of you know this, and it's why we don't pass a plate. It's why we don't pass a bag. We don't want it to be about a show and letting others see that you're giving or not giving. We put the boxes at the back so that giving will be between you and the Lord, so that it can be a matter of faith, not as a matter of outward show. And even in how we handle money, we have certain things written in, and some people don't like them. Like we don't do, um, what? Say it again. 
Thank you. <laughs> we don't do designated giving. We, we say just give and, and let it be taken care of. Well, someone's making the decisions. Yeah, but not you. And some people don't like that. Look, not me. Well, I guess in some ways. I buy pens, you know, for my office. No, the point is that as we give, we give and let go. We don't say, I'm giving, but it's to what I decide. So we don't do designated giving. We don't do fundraisers. People don't like that. We should be able to do fundraisers. Well, I'm sorry. We want people just to simply give by faith and let that be the provision of the body. If you don't like that, that's okay. But God is very intent on valuation. And it does affect your faith. There is no two ways about it. If you don't give, it affects your faith. I'm just telling you. Well, how do you know that? Because for 36 years of my life, I didn't give a cent. Well, that's not true. I gave a few cents out of my allowance because my dad required it when I was a kid. But once I got out of the house as an adult, I never gave. As a pastor, I didn't give. Why would I do that? I didn't understand until I started to see how it affected my faith. If you don't give, it will affect your faith. If you do give, it will affect your faith. Listen, you can't buy holiness, but I'll tell you what. Devoted generosity will cultivate holiness in your life. It's one of many things God knows will impact and affect you. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25 says, the generous man will be prosperous. And that's not prosperity gospel because the prosperous he's talking about isn't just if you give, you're gonna get more money. It's if you give, you will prosper in a way that is holy, that is godly. He who waters will himself also be watered. And anytime you speak of water in the scriptures, think of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus said, hey, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we'll end this whole thing with valuation. But don't miss throughout our study that holiness is the point. Being consecrated, being devoted, being set apart to God. Because he is both the subject and the source. What do you mean? Be holy because I'm holy. He is the subject of holiness. He is the source of holiness. He says, be holy because that's the way I am. And if you're gonna be around me, that's the way I'm inviting you to be as well. Four times in the book, he says, be holy for I am holy. Chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. Chapter 19, verse two. And chapter 20, verse 26. Be holy because I am holy. Warren Wearsby, in his little commentary, which is called Be Holy, on Leviticus, wrote, whatever else the professing Christian church may be known for today, it is not distinguished for its holiness. I don't like that, but I get it. Whatever else the professing church may be known for today, it is not distinguished for its holiness. Wearsby wrote that in 1994. How about today? How about 26 years later, quarter century later? Is there a way to measure, to track how the church is doing today in terms of holiness? I can't speak to the church in the entire world, but I can speak to the American church. I know what the American church looks like today. But, but take my opinions out of it. Let's ask someone who's an expert about the American church, someone who's been 
tracking Christian norms in America since 1984, a man by the name of George Barna. I was sent this last week. I went back and looked up and read the entire report. George Barna has a cultural research center. It's called the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And they just published, within the last couple of weeks here, their American Worldview Inventory 2020. Barna says, quote, alarmed best describes their response to what the survey has revealed. And I need to share it with you today. I, I, I struggle with whether or not I should. You could be really deflated and discouraged by what we're about to hear, but I think we need to hear it. Barna writes, quote, rather than transforming the culture around them with biblical truth, the opposite is happening. American Christianity is rapidly conforming to the values of the post-Christian secular culture. Some key findings. A majority, 52% of evangelical Christians reject absolute moral truth. I hope this stuns you like it stunned me. 61% of evangelical Christians do not read the Bible on a daily basis. 61%. 75% believe that people are basically good and not sinful as the Bible teaches. Three out of four evangelicals think at heart we're good. Then what's the point of Jesus and the cross and the whole deal? About one third of evangelicals embrace beliefs and behaviors that are contrary to biblical teaching. Why is that? They're not in the word. If you're not in the Bible, you don't know what it teaches. If you don't know what it teaches, you're not going to know how to behave in the world in a way that's godly and moral. Now, Barna's research looked at evangelicals as one group. It looked at Pentecostals and Charismatics as another group. It looked at mainline Protestants as a third group. And finally, it looked at Catholics. Listen to this. Pentecostals and Charismatics take secularization a step further. 69% reject absolute moral truth. 54% are unwilling to define life as sacred with half claiming the Bible is ambiguous in its teaching about abortion. 69% of Pentecostals and Charismatics say they prefer socialism to capitalism. Just what it is. 60% of mainline Protestants' beliefs directly conflict with biblical teaching. Three key values define this group. Number one, and this is mainline Protestant, this is denominationalism. Number one, truth and morality are relative. 60% believe this. Number two, life has no inherent value or purpose, so individuals should pursue personal happiness or satisfaction. Number three, traditional religious practices are no longer seen as central or essential to their Christian faith, and only get this, 41% of those who call themselves Protestants claim to be born again. Catholics are increasingly secular and permissive. Of course, maybe you just saw the, the Pope's announcement that he is approving all same-sex unions. This coming from the Pope. It's not my Pope. It's somebody's Pope. Catholics' beliefs are surprisingly similar to those of mainline Protestants, but considerably different from that of evangelical and charismatic Protestants. They are more likely to believe in salvation through works or living a good life 
and least likely to be born again. 28% of Catholics claim to be born again. Today's Catholics are more permissive than other groups regarding sex outside of marriage, lying, and stealing. Well, of course, because all you do is you just go to confession and take care of it, and then it's done. And you move on, do whatever you want. The survey also found among evangelical churchgoers, so get back, because we're probably closest to that group, as far as the Bridge Fellowship being a non-denominational church, evangelical, somewhere in there, although I hate being a voting block. And yet I hope you're going to vote. The survey also found among evangelical churchgoers, 48%, so we're just under half, believe a person who is good enough or does enough good works can earn eternal salvation. If you are sitting here this morning and you think you can earn your way into heaven, you are sorely mistaken. You will not get there on your goodness. You are just not good enough. And there's a lot of good people sitting in this room. 44% reject, this is evangelicals, reject that history is the unfolding narrative of God's reality. 43%, this kills me, 43% of evangelical Christians maintain that when Jesus was on earth, he sinned. 42% look for their moral guidance primarily from sources other than the Bible. There's your problem right there. And 34, 34%, so we're talking more than a third of evangelical Christians reject legitimate marriage as one man and one woman. And the survey goes on and on. I was sickened by what I saw. And I'm not sharing this to to sound all holier than thou because I'm not. Or, Or even to shock or bum anyone out. But clearly, the greatest deficiency in the church today is holiness. If the church is anything, holiness does not define American Christianity. Now, I know some would disagree with me and say, no, the greatest deficiency in the church today is not holiness, it's love. We need to love, right? Hey, the church has been chasing love without holiness for decades, and it's gotten us nowhere. Now, it's true that the only verse, the singular verse that Jesus directly quotes from Leviticus is what he called the second greatest commandment. You might note this, Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's where Jesus got that. And love is absolutely at the heart of our faith. But my friends, don't miss this. The context of godly love is holiness. Let's see if I can explain that. You don't have one without the other. The holiness and love are symbiotic qualities of the nature of God. He is as holy as he is loving. He loves because he's holy. He's holy because he is love. And you cannot separate the two. And yet, that's what American Christianity has done in the name of so-called love. We do unholy things. We accept unholy behaviors. We reject the holiness of God because we got to love people, right, as they are. God always loves people as they are, drawing them to as he is. Changing us, transforming us, calling us to be holy. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5, this is the message that we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's holiness. Absolute purity. 
Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, be holy for I am holy. John also says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. God is absolute holiness. God is love. He is both. And James Strong says, love is central in God, but get this, holiness is central in love. And this is the aspect of love that I think many Christians have forgotten, and that's the holiness side of it. Love is really not love if holiness is rejected. Love is not really love if it just says live however you want, do whatever you want, your lifestyle doesn't matter. That's not love. It's tolerance. It's blind acceptance. It's not love. Because true love wants the best for the other. True love comes from the place of holiness. Sunday morning, January 21st, 1861, a different time, but then 27-year-old Charles Haddon Spurgeon closed his sermon at the Metropolitan, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle with these words, 27 years old, the guy amazes me. He says, an unholy church, it is of no use to the world and of no esteem among men. Oh, it's an abomination, hell's laughter and heaven's abhorrence. And the larger the church, the more influential, the worse nuisance it does it become when it becomes dead and unholy. The worst evils which have ever come upon the world have been brought upon her by an unholy church. What's the answer to an unholy church? A holy one. What turns the tide? Holiness. The question is, do we want to be a holy people unto God? In America, 2020, can we even state that we're willing to take the steps necessary to be a holy people, to pursue holiness? Paul said, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, and not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's so, I mean, this is a, a huge point to get, and I'm gonna jump the gun on my own notes, but you gotta get this. He saved us with a holy calling, not according to works. Think that through. We are called to be holy. Then I gotta work at it. No! How can I be holy if I'm not working at it? I don't get it. Stay with me. Here's the gospel truth. Ephesians 2.13, now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. My friends, the key word of this book is holiness, but the key substance of this book is blood. Blood. This is the bloodiest book in the entire Bible. You lost me at Leviticus. He found me in the blood. Blood is mentioned in the scriptures 460 times. The first time we hear it mentioned, it is gut-wrenchingly tragic. Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, God said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed 
from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. I've often wondered what was it like for Eve to find out her firstborn son, her hope, had murdered her secondborn son, and in one day she lost two boys. Forget Eve. How was it for God to be the one who heard Abel's blood crying to him from the ground? We see blood spilled so early on in the scriptures, and blood is going to be spilled throughout the Bible. For some people, that's why they don't like it. Too much blood. Your God's a bloodthirsty God, is he? The book of Leviticus is a bloody book. Blood is mentioned in this book 90 times. And it's always in terms of sacrifice. As we just read in Leviticus chapter one, man, pour out the blood of the sacrifice. And, and four of the five sacrifices are all blood sacrifices. Slaying of animals, draining their blood, pouring it out, sprinkling it here and there. It's a bloody book. And the first seven chapters detail the five sacrifices that are given on the altar. On the feast days in Jerusalem, I've told you before, they say that the blood ran ankle deep in the temple because so many offerings were being given up. It's the effect of four out of the five sacrificial offerings that are listed here in Leviticus. So again, is, is it because God's just a bloodthirsty God? Why does he want all this blood? Why all this sacrifice? Understand this. He does demand sacrifice here. He never demands human sacrifice but once when it was him on the altar. He is, finds human sacrifice, human slaying, human blood poured out abhorrent, except for one time when he stretched out his arms on the cross of Calvary, when he poured out his own blood. And all the blood here is pointing to that. All the blood is coming to that point. Turn over to Leviticus chapter 17. It's the other major passage. In fact, this is the key verse of the entire book. Leviticus 17, verse 11. You want to underline and highlight at least verse 11. Know this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. We know that. That makes sense. For I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel for the, or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For as in the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh. For the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. God is so serious with this. God created blood, right? He created us to have blood pumping through our veins. And he didn't just do that on a whim. Well, they gotta have something to live, so let's put blood in them. Think about the intentionality of creation that God created us to live by virtue of the blood that would flow in us. He's always thinking ahead. Look at it this way. God created the human tongue and God created the snowflake that, could, that the human tongue could then taste. 
He's intentional with everything. God created the little lamb, knowing the lamb would be the picture of sacrifice. He always knows what he's doing, and so he created blood in us. Wiersbe says, long before medical science discovered the significance of the circulation of blood in the human body and its importance for life, scripture told us that the blood was the life. Any theology that ignores or minimizes the blood isn't founded on the word of God. So if you don't like the blood in the scriptures, then you might as well put away your Bible because that's the deal. The whole thing is pointing to one place and it all connects us to the blood. Uh, Turn over to Hebrews chapter nine. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 18. Hebrews 9, 18. The Hebrew pastor says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, and we'll learn about that in Leviticus, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. A will, a testament. A will goes into effect when someone dies, right? And that's the deal with the covenant. There must be a death. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Who made the covenant? God did. Who died to secure the new covenant? God did. Verse 18, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood, because the first, what we're studying now, Leviticus, is preparing for the second, is directing toward the second. 19, when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you, Exodus 24, verse 8. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with the blood. We studied that recently. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Bonner says, the gospel of the grace of God with all that follows in its train may be found in Leviticus. This is the glorious attraction of the book to every reader who feels himself a sinner. And that's the point this morning. If you feel yourself a sinner, you're in the right book. If you know you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you're in the right place. Leviticus is where you need to be this morning. If you don't think you're a sinner, This book should make that evident. Probably another reason why people avoid it. Leviticus, get this, Leviticus is a shout out to the lost at the last. Here in the last days, this book is a clarion call to anyone who is living outside salvation in Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews chapter nine, verse 13. Look back at verse 13 again. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? And that's the point. So with every sacrifice that we will be looking at, you gotta keep Jesus in mind. You gotta think blood of Christ. Now again, the seven chapters that open up Vayikra are covering or, or cover five specific sacrifices that, that we need to know. We've looked at two of them. We've considered two of them in Exodus already as they've been offered. But here they are. If you wanna just jot, jot them down so you have them a record of them. Leviticus chapter one is the burnt offering. The burnt offering. It's called the olah in Hebrew. And it's a whole burnt offering. The word olah also comes from Allah as when the... Jewish people make aliyah, they, they go up. It's the same root word, olah, for burnt offering, means ascent, because everything in the burnt offering ascends in smoke before the Lord. It is all completely consumed, it is all completely given up. The olah speaks of complete and total devotion. Leviticus chapter one. The second one, Leviticus chapter two, the only one that doesn't have blood all over it is the grain offering, or the minka. Minka. And minka specifically means a gift or a tribute to one greater than yourself. And again, it's the only one without blood. The third offering, Leviticus chapter three, is called the peace offering or the shalomim from shalom. The shalomim. And it means peace or friendship or a voluntary act of alliance with another. The peace offering. I just wanna be with you. I wanna be in communion with you. I wanna fellowship with you. When we take communion on a Sunday morning, it's very much patterned after the peace offering because we are voluntarily coming before the Lord to be at peace with him. That's Leviticus chapter three. Leviticus chapter four is the sin offering. The sin offering called the hatat. That's from the word hata, which means sin or it also means Offense. I know I'm covering this quickly. It's okay, we're gonna come back and take each offering one at a time over the next couple of weeks. But burnt offering, the Olah, chapter one, grain offering, the Minka, chapter two, peace offering, the Shelamim, chapter three, and then the sin offering, Chatat, chapter four, and again, sin or offense. It's the sin offering, it's the offense offering. Someone's been offended here. By the way, the sin offering, the fourth of the five, is the atoning offering that covers the offense. So the offense happens, the sin occurs, and the sin offering is given to cover that. John Corson likes to say that sin isn't bad because it's wrong, it's wrong because it's bad. It's not that God made an arbitrary list of shoulds and oughts and do's and don'ts. It's that sin inherently steals and kills and destroys. Sin is that which will ruin a life. And God knows this, and so God says, don't do this. Don't do these. Don't partake of that. That sin, well, you're just making up, so you just don't want me to have fun. No, he doesn't want you to be destroyed. And that's the idea. But understand this, while sin steals and kills and destroys what the devil loves to do, sin is an offense to God. So yes, 
It's destructive, but it is also offensive. It is offensive to him, and it is an offense against him because he's holy. Like David said, against you and you alone have I sinned. All sin is an offense against God. And so he provides this sin offering for the atonement. Chapter four, verse 20, we see the word atonement. You'll see it a lot in this book. Atonement, it's kapoor, Yom Kippur. And the atonement literally means covering, to cover over. It's an Old Testament word, get this, an Old Testament word you will never find in the New Testament. I hear Christians a lot of times saying, you know, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus wasn't atoning. It was much bigger than that. The sacrifice of Jesus didn't just cover over your sin. It wiped it out. It washed it away. It completely removes it as far as the east is from the west. So it's not just atonement, but at this point, atonement was the best they could have, a, a covering over. Now, some might say, well, in my Bible, I love when people use that phrase, in my Bible, as if theirs is the right one. Romans 5.11, in the King James translation, reads, we also joy in God, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. There it is, in the New Testament. No, there it is in the King James translation, and it's the wrong word. The word that is translated atonement is the Greek word katalagain, and katalagain literally means exchange or reconciliation. So the verse should read, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Not the atonement, the reconciliation. And reconciliation with God only comes through the blood of Christ. Atonement is a cover-up. Not a cover-up like a political cover-up, which we're seeing enough of right now, aren't we? It's not a cover-up. It's, you know, guys, I don't know if you knew this. Your wives, your girlfriends, they have a thing called cover-up. I discovered this. No, this stuff's magic. You know, all the guys going through high school with zits all over their faces, and the girls actually look somewhat better. How is that working? Cover up. They have this stuff, and it's skin-colored, and they wipe it on, and it covers over. That's atonement. Atonement is a covering. The blemish remains. The sin is still there. The blood of all these animals, and that's why the Hebrew pastor said the blood of sin, the, the, the blood of goats and of, and of calves and of bulls and rams, that, that could only, it could only put off the inevitable. It could only cover. So the atonement is a covering. God knows the sin is still there. All these decades, these eons with Israel, God knows the sin's still there. He's just covering it. Kind of like he covered Moses in the cleft of the rock when he passed by so that Moses wouldn't be destroyed. He covers sin so that they won't be destroyed. Not yet. He covers it. Why? To what purpose? Romans chapter 3, verse 23, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul writes, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, not an atonement, a propitiation which is the complete satisfaction of the wrath of God. 
a propitiation in his blood through faith. And then Paul explains this. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. He atoned for. He put on hold the punishment of. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is just, it is fair to let those who didn't know have the chance to yet be saved when Jesus gave his blood. So he covered their sin in pure fairness because they weren't there at the time of Jesus. We're talking about the people of Israel in the Exodus heading toward the promised land. We're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who were not there in the days of Jesus. We're not there to see the sacrifice and know the sacrifice of Jesus. So what did they do? They put their faith in God. They just trusted to him and God says, I got you covered. I will cover your sin until the sacrifice be made that then propitiates for that sin. Now, for some of you, this is basic theology 101, but it's not talked about in the church very much. So we come back to it and we define it again. There must be a sin offering. Jesus Christ is the sin offering. Reconciliation, propitiation by the blood of Christ. The precious blood of Jesus that, listen to this, does not cover your sin. Wipes it out so that it no longer has power or hold or even presence in your life. That's what Jesus did. Why did he do it? To reconcile us to God. To get us back into the relationship God desires. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's our purpose here. An unholy church will not bring the word of reconciliation to the world. Why would the world want what the church has when the church looks exactly like the world looks? In behavior, in attitude, in belief, no different. Why would anybody care? If we're not a holy church, we will not reach a lost world. But there's one more sacrificial offering in the five. I've given you four. Going over them again, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering. These are all specific and for specific reasons. And then the fifth one is called, and I love this one, in Leviticus chapter 5 through chapter 6 verse 7, the guilt offering. The guilt offering. Such is the love and grace of God, he even provides an offering for our guilt. And the word in the Hebrew is easy to remember. It's asham. Asham. Think about being ashamed and that's the guilt offering. It deals with our shame. It deals with the guilt. It relieves the shame that accompanies the sin. We have the sin offering, the sin that would be atoned for for the people of Israel. Our sin propitiated, washed away by the blood of Jesus. But yet, how many of you know your sins are forgiven, but you're still guilty about it? After the fact, okay, I believe that he died for my sin, but man, why did I do this? And it hangs over you. And the shame that seems to remain, God doesn't want that for you. He has paid the price for your sin. He now wants to wipe away the guilt that comes with it. And it's the only way. Psychology has it all wrong. Psychology says just ignore the guilt. Just let it go. Anybody tried to do that? I'm just, gonna, it's just, I'm just not going to be guilty anymore. But I'm still guilty. 
God says, I have a way, Israel. I'm gonna cover your sin, and then I have an offering for you that you can give to wipe away the guilt, the asham. And, and specifically, the guilt offering is for relieving the shame of sin, whether it's intentional or inadvertent. An offering for sin you don't even know you committed. That's the, the guilt offering. Now, we usually know, most of us, <laughs> we know when we've done the wrong thing. I know when I've wronged my wife. I may not admit it right away, but I know. I know I did it. I know when I've wronged my friends, wronged my countrymen. I, I know, I know when I've wronged God himself. That's the way our consciences are hardwired. Pray that your conscience never gets seared, as Paul warns in 2 Timothy. Conscience is seared. No, our conscience tells us, but there are sins of inadvertence, things that we don't even know We've done wrong until we have the knowledge of that. Then someone comes along and says, oh, by the way, you know, that's a horrible thing to do. Oh, <laughs> really? I didn't know. Or we pretend we didn't know. But sins that we really don't know, that's this offering. The Lord provides a gracious, tangible way to remove guilt and shame from sin that is intended or not. Because he's a just God. The same God who said in Isaiah 1:18, come now, let's reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Let me just point this out to you. Notice the progression of the sacrifices. It just speaks the heart of God. The burnt offering, which asks for devotion. The grain offering, which is an offering of worship. The peace offering, which is all about friendship. And those are the first three. That's where God begins. They're all three relational. They reveal what God desired with us from the very beginning. But Adam and Eve lost it. They lost devotion. They lost worship. They lost friendship with God. They rejected that. And we, likewise, though it's a beautiful, wonderful thing, can't get there. We blew it. And so the Lord brings the last two offerings into play, the sin offering to cover the sin, and finally the guilt offering to remove debilitating shame. Let me just say this as an aside. If you're sitting here this morning and you have debilitating, debilitating shame over some sin in your life, there is only one way that it can be removed, and that is in Jesus Christ. Here's the beautiful thing. He stands arms open this morning to receive you and to say, let's, let's deal with that. Let's wash this away. Let's start fresh right now. The beauty of all five offerings, I think more than anything else, and I said this at the outset, is they speak of Jesus. These are five cameos of the Christ, I like to call them. Cameos of the Christ, each and every one meticulously, specifically, each offering points to, is summed up in and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And we will see that over the next Wednesday or two. Which brings me finally to the last thing I want to say to you, and that is the key personality. Okay, let's, let's be honest. It's not the last thing I want to say, but we're getting close. The key personality of Vayikra of Leviticus, and that key personality is Jesus. This book is about Jesus. I'll tell you what, anybody says, hey, there's a book about Jesus out there, I wanna read it. I wanna see. 
And this is one of the premier books in the Bible that is all about Jesus Christ. Again, Hebrews chapter 10. Let me just read this to you. And Jake uh, read it this morning. Therefore, he comes into the world. When he comes into the world, Hebrews 10 verse 5, he says, quoting Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus is saying this. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, as in Leviticus, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And then in verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The offering of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. Five sacrifices given to Israel. Why? Five is the number of grace pointing to Jesus Christ. So when his sacrifice comes, when his sacrifice happens in history, everybody could say, oh, that's what it's for. Now I get it. I understand. All of these offerings the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering all summed up in the one offering of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. It's profound, remarkable what he did. You lost me at Leviticus. He found me at the blood. And that's the point. Now I told my family, and I want to wrap this up, but I told my family the last couple of days, I want to be able to articulate this right. And I'm going to do my best, but sometimes there are things in my head and I don't, I don't know how to say it or get it out right. But let me try. The whole point of this book is holiness by the blood of sacrifice. If you take this as a manual on how to be holy, you'll never get there. You got to approach approach Leviticus, not with an attitude that, oh yeah, this is ancient law. No, this is for you, this is for me. But we approach it understanding it is a call to holiness by the blood of Christ. You might say, well, Rick, that's pretty simple. Stay with me. The Midrash Leviticus Rabbah that I mentioned as we began explained why many Jewish children are taught Leviticus as their introduction, saying, children are pure, Therefore, let them study laws of purity. But if this book teaches us anything, it is that we are not naturally pure. We need a pure sacrifice. See, and that's the thing. It's not only the blood of goats and bulls and rams and lambs. The blood of anybody in here would not suffice because none of our blood is pure. You've got to have pure blood for the perfect sacrifice for propitiation for that washing, that satisfaction to happen. We've got to have a pure sacrifice. And so there's a more profound reason given as to why Jewish children should start in Leviticus. And it really comes to where the heart of this is. Leviticus, as a book, tastes more of blood than of honey. It's not a a sweet book. It's a bloody book. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And this book is about drinking that blood and getting the taste of blood in your mouth. Baruch Levine, a Jewish scholar, said, it has also been suggested that Jewish learning began here, listen, to teach from the outset that life involves sacrifice. One contemporary writer suggests, quote, 
in sacrifice, we could for a fleeting moment imagine our own death and yet go on living. No other form of worship can so effectively liberate a person from the fear of living in the shadow of death than self-sacrifice. It's still not holiness achieved. Now, so understand, self-sacrifice is not about achieving holiness because you cannot achieve holiness, but you can receive holiness. And listen, holiness once received will be seen in self-sacrifice. Holiness received by the blood of Jesus will be seen in a life that begins to then honor and emulate the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. You wanna be holy? You gotta receive the Holy One. You've got to receive Jesus. Only then are you made holy. But once made holy, your life begins to change. A holy church is a self-sacrificial church. A holy person is one who sets personal needs and desires aside and does for others and sacrifices for others and lives for others. I know I've mentioned my wife a lot. I've been more proud of her in the last month than I have in our entire marriage. Most of you don't know this, but while she was in Ghana and she came home on Thursday, Christopher is still there. We're going back for him as soon as we can, as soon as we have a court date. She came home on Thursday. What I didn't share with you over the last couple of weeks is while Cheryl was in Ghana, she got typhoid and malaria. And the whole time was working with Grandma Judy to bring her home, to get Christopher settled. I don't know how she's been sleeping for three days. And we're gonna take her to an infectious disease doctor just to be sure that she's okay at this point. I have watched this <laughs> little girl that I knew as a 17-year-old who was so sweet and innocent and, and just, you know, there, there wasn't a bad bone in Cheryl's body. She never offended anyone. She was just happy-go-lucky, you know, and I've watched in our life a person become self-sacrificial in ways that ha have stunned me. And again, I'm not saying that to, it's not a point of pride in my marriage, you know, but I've watched her be self-sacrificial based on a single principle in Cheryl's life, what are we here for? She said that over and over and over to me. What are we here for? When she says that, I know I'm in trouble because I know I'm gonna be required to sacrifice something I don't wanna sacrifice. What are we here for? And, and my friends, that's a holy life. That's a holy life. Doesn't even know she's holy. That's a holy life. It's a life of self-sacrifice. Not because you think the self-sacrifice is gonna buy your way in, but because you know the self-sacrifice is the only way you can be when you get the sacrifice of Jesus. When you understand the holiness that comes of his self-sacrifice, what else can you do? Because you're made holy. And so we function out of the place of holiness, not trying to get into the place of holiness. No, we receive that from Jesus. Therefore, we can act like a holy church, a holy people. And listen to it defined beautifully, Revelation 12, verse 11, they overcame the devil because of the blood of the lamb. There it is, the blood. And because of the word of their testimony. What is the word of our testimony? Vayikra. It is the word of God. And they did not love their life even when faced with 
death, and that is holy sacrifice. That's what holiness looks like. Living by the pattern of the holy, self-sacrificial Jesus. And I hope we get that. Would you stand with me? I can tell you with all honesty that that this week um, my heart has broken over the unholiness of the church and over the unholiness of my own life. When you begin to consider all of these things, it, it is sad to me. Things I wish I had comprehended years and years ago things that I'm just beginning to start to think that perhaps maybe I get. (laughs) What Paul said in Romans 12, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we stand before you this morning. And we ask you to forgive us for our lackadaisical attitude toward holiness. We stand before you this morning as a people who only can stand, who have only been made holy by the blood of Jesus. And it is blood that we again receive today. It is blood that we again acknowledge today. And we state clearly to you as to ourselves, we are only holy because of you. We have only been recipients of holiness. But Father, the conviction that I have felt and I pray for among us all is a conviction to live lives that are holy to you, lives that are singular in purpose, to be truly pure in heart. That is everything about us and in us focusing on and directed toward you, Lord Jesus, because the end is near. And I pray from that position of self-sacrificial others loving holiness that we might be yet of use to you in these last days until the kingdom come father i pray make us a holy fellowship and make your church a holy church and father for anyone this morning who feels less than holy unholy sinful messed up. I pray the grace of Jesus. I pray a reception on their part of the blood that was shed for them. And I ask, Lord, that you would work your will among us in Jesus' name. Amen. 